gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, but even more to prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets, so that the church may be built up. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? If even lifeless instruments, such as the flute or the harp, do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what's played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves, since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you can give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law it's written, By people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people. And even then, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus, tongues are a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, while prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsider unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if all prophesy, and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Excited to get to that last point, verse 25, because that is the aim that we desire, that all would recognize that God really is among us in our hearts. And so with that, let us pray. Lord, we do ask that you would assist us and that your presence would be known. As we read your word, Spirit, as you give us clarity and understanding, that we would know you. For that's the end for which we live. And it's the end that we desire in one another, that one another would be built up as we 
encourage one another and seek to build up one another and console one another. And so I pray that that's what would be accomplished in our time of worship today. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. So again, this is our second sermon in these verses. Uh, Last week, we particularly looked at verses uh, 1 through 5. This week, we're going to spend most of our time looking at 6 through uh, 25, the rest of that section. And Paul's main point in these 25 verses is simply to articulate that the aim of ministry is not to pursue our own uh, impressiveness to show off our spiritual gifts or abilities, but the aim should be to edify one another, to build up the church. And because of that, prophecy is superior to tongues. And he makes this point in four paragraphs. In the last week, we looked at the first paragraph, and it was a simple summary of his argument that prophecy is superior to tongues because of its ability to edify. And the second paragraph points out that tongues is ineffective in edifying unless it's accompanied by other gifts. And he illustrates this point with musical instruments, as we see. And then the third paragraph argues again, really it's the same point as he makes in the previous, uh, again, slightly different point. But essentially that tongues is ineffective in edifying unless it's interpreted. It needs to be interpreted in order for it to have an edifying effect. Otherwise, it's just noise. And he illustrates this by differentiating between the spirit and mind of a person. And we'll clarify that as we get to that section. And then the final paragraph, the fourth paragraph, points out that tongues was actually particularly designed for unbelievers. God gave that gift really to be a sign for unbelievers, not for believers, and he illustrates this by quoting the Old Testament. So let's look at the first, or rather the second paragraph, his first point in today's message, that tongues lacks intelligibility and substance. Verse 6. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching? So his point is, Speaking in tongues is not going to help a person unless there's people who understand what you're saying. It would be impressive if all of a sudden somebody speaks in a language that they previously didn't understand. But if nobody understands what's being said, it's not helpful. It's impressive, but it's not helpful. It would be helpful if what that person brings is some sort of knowledge or prophecy or teaching. Then it could actually edify But merely hearing the sounds of a foreign language is not going to build up another person. Again, it might be impressive, but it won't actually accomplish the end for which spiritual gifts are given. So tongues does not edify without interpretation. And it does not edify without the assistance of some other gifts. Again, prophecy, revelation, knowledge, or teaching. And he illustrates this by referring to instruments. For instance, if somebody is going to just grab one of the instruments off the stage, like my children like to do after church, just grab a drumstick and pa 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 bang on the drums, it might be impressive, the noise that they're able to make, but it won't be particularly edifying. In fact, actually, it will it'll actually just sound like a bunch of noise. If we hand somebody a violin or a cello who's never played the instrument before, it's not pretty. It's just noise. Such noise will benefit nobody. As Paul said in verse, or chapter 13, verse 1, it would 
a person just speaking in a foreign language that isn't understood would be like a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Unless, of course, they're understood. Or take a bugle's call, he says. A bugle's notes, when a person plays a bugle, what they're playing will make no sense to anybody unless they understand what's being played. So if you're on a military base and you don't understand the difference between reveille or taps, you're going to be confused. Just like a person who doesn't understand a foreign language. And Paul clarifies this point again in verses 9 through 11. So with yourselves, if with your tongue you utter speech that's not intelligible, how will anyone know what's being said? For you're speaking into the air. There are doubtless many different languages in the world, and none is without meaning. But if I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker a foreigner to me. So that's pretty straightforward. If you don't understand the language, you don't understand what's being said. And the problem is not the lack of meaning, it's the lack of understanding. If as often happens, Daniel or Julio say something to me very quickly. I'm not going to understand most of what's being said. I'll just nod and smile and say, yeah, sure. Um, and I'm not edified. But if there's a translator or if they speak really slowly, I might understand. A person speaking Spanish still has words with meaning. But if their audience is Swedish, the Swedes won't make any sense of it. So merely speaking in a foreign language will not edify, even if one is, is witnessing a miracle. It's still not edifying. And the goal is edification, as Paul's been arguing. It's cool, but it's not helpful. So Paul concludes in verse 12, So with yourselves, since you're eager for manifestations of the Spirit, which is a good thing, with that eagerness... Strive to excel in building up the church. Again, that's his main point that he keeps reiterating. Build up the church. That should be your aim as you come together. Not to impress others with spirituality, but to build others up. And so there's actually a really good principle that we can derive here for teaching. And at the end of the service, we're actually going to talk about our vision again for children's ministries. And so there's actually clear application for us even regarding children's ministry. Because it shows us that the aim of teaching is not simply to articulate truth, but for that truth to be understood. If you say something that isn't understood, understandable, that person's not going to be under, uh, edified. So if I, if I read, my, for instance, at the dinner table, my, my children, um, some Puritan sermon with that archaic language, they're not going to get much out of it. Now, I might be thinking, hey, I'm waxing elephant. This is cool. I might get something out of it, but it's going to go over my kids' heads. And really, if that's the case, it's not for them. It's for me. Maybe I'm showing off or maybe I'm just thinking about my own edification, but it's not going to help them, and that should be the goal. Now, that may mean that a person loses depth, and maybe some value in the teaching as they seek to simplify it, to make it understandable. But again, the aim is still not to impress, but to edify, to make clear. John Owen, who was, in, in my opinion, the greatest theologian in history. And particularly in his time, he was an incredibly intelligent individual, very erudite, uh, famous scholar. And he was once asked by King Charles II, while some, why somebody so thoroughly educated as he, who was teaching in 
the, the, the elite university. I mean, the King Charles, he knew King Charles was asking him. He had a relationship with the King of England. And he asks him why he would want to hear a mere tinker preach. And this says so much about Owen. He replied, may it please your majesty, if I could possess the tinker's ability to grip men's hearts, he's referring to John Bunyan's preaching, if he had his ability to grip men's hearts, I would gladly give in exchange all my learning. You see what he's saying? He's saying, I value the ability to communicate truth in a way that edifies more than I value all my learning and my ability to articulate it. Likewise, one of the reasons John Wycliffe was so influential, people, he's described as the morning star of the Reformation. He, again, like Owen, was one of the most intelligent men in English history, extremely erudite. But what made him so effective is that he tailored his teaching to his audience. When he preached to his parish, he was a pastor. When he preached to his parish, his instruction was in English, which was actually kind of unique. A lot of the instruction was in Latin during that time. And he used English, and and his sermons were very simple and very clear. But when he lectured to his students at Oxford, he spoke in Latin. And he used Aristotelian logic and canon law to defend his theological convictions. And that's how they taught back then. So when he, when he was with one group of people, he sought to edify them according to their needs, becoming all things to all men in that sense. And with another group, he spoke according to what would edify them. And that's the same way we should think as we teach others. So these men were effective in their influence upon the church because they aimed at edification, not simply at being impressive. Now, of course, that doesn't mean we should just always seek to make our teaching as simple as possible. Because then, if it's just so simple, there may not be any edification at all. And so we have to strike some sort of balance. Trying to be as edifying as possible with as much depth, where at the same time what we're saying is understandable. Aiming, I'm probably something like how John Bunyan taught, theological depth with clarity. So applications for us. We need to seek to edify, not just in our teaching, but even in our sharing the gospel. And so when we share the gospel with unbelievers, we we don't want to just go through our philosophy of what we believe using Christianese phrases that they have no context for understanding. We want what we say to be clear and understandable. And that's why uh, with the, the youth ministry, what we were doing just a few weeks ago was uh, training them in... Uh, the curriculum, Two Ways to Live. And the aim of that curriculum is training uh, the students to, to articulate the gospel in as clear a language as possible. And you actually memorize these, uh, um, this, fra- these, these, this structure, this rote presentation of the gospel, not so you would present that rote presentation, but so it would be so clear in your mind that when you speak, you'd also make it clear to an unbeliever in a way that's not confusing. The same is true in our membership and ministry testimonies. The aim of our testimonies, when somebody comes up and shares what God's been doing in their ministry, in their life, is not simply to show off and be impressive, but rather to adorn the gospel, to edify everyone else. And so that takes time to craft what you desire to say so that it's clear and actually builds up others. Likewise, in our community groups, when we get together in community groups and, and talk about what we're learning in the word, it's not just simply for us to talk about what we think or just simply to talk. 
and listen to ourselves think. The aim is to edify one another, asking questions or making statements that actually work towards building up everyone there, not just simply you know, talking about what we want to talk about. On the other hand, failing to say nothing at all would, would be no more edifying. And so there should also be an attempt on behalf of all of us to be as involved as we can. And again, this really gives a context to what we're trying to accomplish in our church services, in our community groups, in our discipleship groups, in our classes, in our Bible studies. We're aiming at edifying the body of Christ. And so your gift may not be teaching. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it's just serving or giving or leading. But whatever you do, seek in that service to build up others. Not simply do what you want, but purposefully seeking to edify one another. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. As we heard in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. We're just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal unless we're pursuing love and edification. And this brings us to the second point. Tongues is mentally unhelpful, even if it's spiritually impressive. Paul says in verse 13, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he would interpret. And of course, when we see a therefore, we need to see, well, what's it referring to? What's it going back to? Well, it's referencing what Paul said in verse 12, that since the Corinthians were so eager for manifestation of the Spirit, they needed to pray that they would also be able to um, edify the church in that gift that they had. If tongues is going to be used, therefore one should pray that it's accompanied with interpretation. Because if it's not interpreted, it's not going to edify, it's not going to accomplish the end. And Paul illustrates this point by considering the difference between a person's spirit and a person's mind. And if we recognize that he's trying to illustrate his point, we'll we'll guard ourselves from confusion. So he uses a common Greek differentiation here between a person's spirit and a person's mind. And we do the same thing. We talk about um, our mind or our emotions. For instance, um, when we describe something as being mentally stimulating, yet emotionally bland, like a, like a college lecture. Okay, I learned some things, but I wasn't particularly moved by it. Or emotionally moving, but not particularly edifying. So think of like a motion picture, an action flick or something. You were moved, you were stirred, but you didn't actually, you weren't built up. You weren't spiritually uh, developed by watching the movie. Ideally, for the most edification to take place, you're going to have both. You're going to be spiritually moved and also have um, excellent teaching. So consider like a going to a conference, maybe Canvas, where you're going to get rich teaching. And at the same time, there's also rich worship. It's both uh, intellectually stimulating, but also moving to the soul, moving to the spirit. Again, we can illustrate this with music. Music, again, has the power to move a person's spirit. Just think about how a a, a musical score works in a movie. You take that musical score out, it's just not as moving. And yet, if you just listen to the music, and, and, and you're not hearing actors speak or watching the actors, you're not built up. Because what's the point of the movie is what the actors are saying and doing. 
And so the aim should be to be both spiritually moved, having our, our hearts get convicted and encouraged, but also be mentally engaged, have our mind built up. So Paul is saying tongues taps into the spiritual side. It's a spiritual gift. It's spiritually impressive. But it's not edifying in that it, when it's being used, nobody understands unless there's an interpretation. So in order for it to be edifying, interpretation needs to be there. Otherwise, as the band Candace said, it's just going to be like dust in the wind. Words that go nowhere and are captured by the wind. Don't edify at all. So Paul is saying that this is true in regard to praying, singing, and giving thanks as well. And this, it's interesting, this is why some people think that interpret tongues as a prayer language. He doesn't just talk about prayer. He's talking about all these things. If I do any of these things in a foreign language, it's not going to help. As he explains in verse 14, if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, my spirit's moved, think of it that way, but my mind is unfruitful unless I know what's being said. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit and pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit and I will sing with my mind also. So both things. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he doesn't know what you're saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person's not being built up. So just imagine, even if you just sit there in silence giving thanks. You're giving thanks in your spirit. But if you don't say anything, nobody else is going to be encouraged by what you're saying because they're not going to know what you said. Likewise, if you said it in a foreign language, they're not going to understand. And the aim is for others to be built up. So there should not just be a spiritual power in your ministry, but mental edifying power as well. Both part needs to be engaged, both mind and spirit. Likewise, tongues need to be accompanied with interpretation in order for people's minds to be edified. Even if they're already spiritually moved by seeing this miracle. And the same is true with their audience. They should be able to say amen to what you're saying. See, it's good that a person is spiritually moved to give thanks. But again, the, the aim is not simply to be moved, but to edify everyone else around you. And so Paul, you can see, Paul is um, intensely concerned that the worship service be not about just the individual who shows up, but that our, our desire should be that everyone that we interact with gets built up as well. Everyone else's spiritual encouragement should be our focus when we gather together. And Paul uses an interesting word here that's translated outsider or unbeliever in the ESV. And the word is actually the word idiotes, where we get the word idiot. And what it means is, in the Greek, is a person who's unlearned or untrained. The person who can't comprehend what's going on. Now, before you think Paul, that Paul is just being demeaning here, he uses the word actually to describe himself in 2 Corinthians 11.6. When he says, even if I'm unskilled in speaking, even if I'm an idiot, I'm not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way, we've made this plain in all things. So he uses this word even to describe himself as one who's unskilled. So the idiot or the outsider in the ESV is simply the person who doesn't understand what's going on, doesn't understand what's being said. 
And they can't understand because whatever is moving in that person's spirit is not registering in the mind. And because they don't understand, they can't say amen. And that's the aim that they might be built up. And so he says in verse 18, I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. He concludes this section again by affirming that tongues isn't the problem. Tongues is a gift. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It just needs help. Like music. Music is a beautiful thing. But for it to be really edifying, let's give some rich lyrics to it. And then we can really be built up. And to make his point, he emphatically says that five words understood are better than 10,000 uninterpreted words. And by the way, that's, that's the greatest Greek numeral that they had. I'd rather just speak five words to understand. You can't say very many things. You can't say much in five words. Just try it. And even saying, I love you, is three words. It's about as simple as you get. You say, I'd rather be so simple and be understood than eloquent and not be understood. Nevertheless, in the church, as he said, I'd rather speak five words with my mind than 10,000 words in a tongue. This brings us to Paul's third argument where he explains tongues is designed for unbelievers, but prophecy edifies everyone. He says, brothers, do not be children in your thinking, but be infants in evil. But in your thinking, be mature. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking, be mature. In the law, it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners, will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me. He says, don't be children in your thinking. The Corinthians were focusing just upon being spiritually impressive. And they were thinking like children, just as children can just be uh, obsessed with being entertained or what's just essentially impressive. What's novel or spectacular. You know, it's interesting, just like uh, most amusement parks or games were originally designed for kids. And the entertainment industry over the last 100 years has slowly shifted from just appealing to kids to really appealing to adults. And the reason for this shift is that Americans have more and more leisure time than they've ever had. And so as the standard of living has increased, adults have been able to spend more time pursuing their childish interests. And that's why, we ha- why children have recess and playgrounds. It's not something that tends to dominate college campuses. And Well, even that tend- that's even starting to change. Or think even of uh, children's Sunday school. We might use videos or skits or you know, a puppet show or something to illustrate a point, and that's totally appropriate. But imagine Chris or Josh in one of their Sunday school classes doing the same thing. Like, you know, sock puppets. You think, what is going on? Do you think we're idiots? Do you think we're kids? You'd be offended. And likewise, the Corinthians, instead of acting like children who tend to be self-focused and need to be entertained or just spiritually moved, they need to be thinking about edifying others, not just themselves. So Paul says, be mature. And again, he's drawing on this similar theme that he's had throughout this book. Be mature. Focus on maturity. Personal growth and the growth of the body. 
But because they were caught up in their childish self-focus, they were totally missing the point. And Paul illustrates this by referencing the law. And the verse that he cites is Isaiah 28, 11 through 12. And go ahead and look at that because it's critical in understanding what Paul is saying about the gifts of tongues. And you'll notice in that context, in Isaiah 28, 11 through 12, it points to a time when God is going to send Gentile nations to call Israel to repentance. And incidentally, this is further proof that Paul's tongues are actual languages, not some just babble, as often people believe. Because he's calling people to speak in their language to the Jews as a sign of judgment. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to this people to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, and yet they will not hear. So this gift serves as a sign to unbelieving Jews who continued to refuse to repent and believe what God was telling them to do. And so God was now turning to the Gentiles. He would turn to the Gentiles and give the Gentiles His Holy Spirit, moving away from His chosen people to the nations. And as, those, as He pours out His Spirit, as He gives the Spirit to these Gentile nations, they will in their own language, speak to the Jews in that language and call them to repentance. And guess what? That's exactly what we see happening in Acts chapter 2. Gentile or Jewish people from all these other nations speaking their languages come to Jerusalem and they hear the apostles speaking in the languages from the nations from which they had been. And as a sign that God was now directing his attention toward the Gentiles. And after all the Gentiles hear the gospel and are saved, God says those Gentiles are going to pursue the Jews and call the Jews to repentance. And then all Israel, as he says in Romans, shall be saved. And so the reason the Corinthians should desire tongues is so that more and more people groups might hear the gospel and be saved. And that as more and more people are prepared to share the gospel, then more and more people will be sharing the gospel to those unbelieving Jews. And this is Paul's great longing. Remember what he said in Romans? And by the way, that's the Acts 2, 7 through 12. All the nations that hear the gospel and their language. But again, what he said in Romans... That I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. This, I mean, Paul couldn't, Paul couldn't say this in any more strong language. He didn't say that very articulately, but Paul does. He wishes that he could be accursed just so that they might know the gospel. Well, what needs to happen for his countrymen to be saved. Paul understands because he understands God's plan. Notice what he says. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles in as much then as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus say some of them. Or then again in Romans 11:25, as he speaks to the Gentiles, lest you be wise in your own sight. I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. 
a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Paul understands not all Israel will be saved until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. And so he pursues the Gentiles with all his heart, with every nation, all the nations of the Gentiles, because he knows that it's after that, then Israel will come to repentance. And some Jews will get saved before that time as they hear the Gentiles preaching the gospel in their language. But Paul's great heart is that all the Gentiles be saved and the Jews as well, and then Christ will return. And so he says in verse 22, Thus, tongues is a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers, particularly unbelieving Israel. While prophecy is a, not a, is a sign not for unbelievers, but for believers. See, prophecy, unlike tongues, was specifically designed to build up the members of the body of Christ. It's for those people who are already saved. And incidentally, Paul's emphasis on the priority of prophecy to tongues demonstrates the reality that we're not simply here just to evangelize. I've heard people say that, and it's true we are here to evangelize, but not just evangelize. We're here to build up the church also. That's why he says prophecy is important. So both things need to be taking place. Both pursuits need to dominate our lives, both that all people might be saved, evangelism, but also edification. The growth of the church is also vitally important. As Jesus said, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them after you've shared the gospel with them and teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. Both things need to take place. Paul continues in verse 23. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and an outsider unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? But if I'll prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare, God is really among you. So what Paul is describing is a situation in which every person in the church is supernaturally speaking in a different language. But all different languages. And if somebody came in and saw a bunch of people speaking in a different language, thinking, what in the world's going on? Okay, this is cool, but it's not, they're not really helping one another, and they're not really helping me. And in that sense, he will recognize that they're out of their minds, because nobody's being helped. But if a person prophesies, then, and, and that, an unbeliever, the outsider, hears that prophecy then they're going to be convicted. And not just the unbeliever, but the, every believer that's there as well that understands what's being said. All will be convicted. All will be edified. And so prophecy is superior to tongues because it always accomplishes edification. But tongues doesn't particularly edify. And it needs help from some other gift in order to edify. And it needs to be interpreted. Moreover, if they all prophesy, notice again the effect. It says they're convicted. So, uh, it can be translated rebuked. They're rebuked. This is the same word that Paul used, or sorry, Luke uses when he said Herod the Tetrarch had been reproved by him for Herodias' brother's wife and for all the evil things that Herod had done. 
Paul says in Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them or rebuke them. It's the word. Same word he uses in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof or rebuke or conviction, for correction and for training in righteousness. The second thing he says is going to take place is they're going to be called to account. Another word that Paul has frequently used, it's the word translated judged. Paul uses this in 1 Corinthians 2 when he says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For their folly to him, he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself is judged by no one. So this calling to account is this judgment. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 3, it's a small thing that I should be judged by you by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. So what he's saying is when the unbeliever comes there's going to, and they hear a prophecy, they're going to be rebuked. They're going to be convicted and they're going to be judged. And the secrets of his heart will be exposed. Now, of course, this doesn't, this doesn't mean that we're supposed to be judgmental and act like self-righteous prigs shaking our finger at the unbeliever who visits. And yet we should desire unbelievers to understand the consequences of their sin. And we need to be aware of the fact that they are walking along the precipice of the bottomless pit. And so we're hardly loving to them if as they go, we just wave and say goodbye and say, have a nice trip, knowing their danger in falling. We should care about the danger that they're in. And so therefore call them to account. Likewise, again, the secrets of their heart would be exposed. This, As I read this, it sounds like Hebrews 4, the effects of the word. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. That should be the effect upon the unbeliever, the outsider, when they come into the church. Hardly seeker-sensitive. We should notice. That's the aim. If a person doesn't know Christ, if they're in danger of going to hell, they should not feel just okay when they leave. We failed if that's the case. And notice what would happen. Be convicted, called to account, secrets disclosed, resulting in this falling on his face worshiping God and declaring that God is really among you. And notice again also the emphasis of the word all. Paul expects all the believers to be involved in this, right? If they would all prophesy, this is what would happen. They would see that God is among them. What makes the outsider come to this conclusion that God is among them? How does the unbeliever know and see God is among you? They're convicted. They're judged. or called to account. And the secrets of their heart are disclosed. That's the evidence that God is among them. Now, to be fair, 
What Paul is describing is the hypothetical effect of an unbeliever who comes into a church and is surrounded by everybody in the church prophesying. So realistically, that's not something we should expect in the worship service today. Right? Everybody prophesying. But at the same time, understand what he's articulating as the desired effect on the unbeliever. This is the desired outcome of someone attending the worship service. Again, for the believers, 14.3, that they would be encouraged, built up, and consoled. For the unbeliever, they'd be convicted, called to account, and have their heart exposed, leading to broken-hearted, humble worship of the Savior. That's the aim of the worship service. And so if you want to know, how is it that I should pray before each worship service? Maybe when you wake up in the morning or as your families, we pray as we're going to church as a family, preparing for the, uh, the service to come. Or maybe when you come into church and uh, everybody's sitting down, you're wondering, what should I pray for? Pray for these six things to take place. Those three things for the believer, that, that every believer would be built up, encouraged, and consoled. And that unbelievers would be convicted, called to account, and have their heart exposed. And so I think we should ask ourselves, what would it take for a person to be convinced that God is among the believers of Grace and Truth Bible Church? What would it take for an unbeliever to come in here and have this same sort of reaction? What would it look like? What would need to happen? I think there's much that we can be said and we can discuss this in our community groups. But two things that have come to my mind is just what Paul's already been talking about. Truth and love. First of all, 1 Corinthians 13, that we would not be self-focused, that we would be loving. We'd be thinking about one another and any unbeliever that might come. We would so care about the unbeliever that comes rather than just what we want, what we're looking forward to, but care about their soul, that they would see it and they'd know it. And you know when somebody cares about you, when they're not just trying to sell you something, but they actually care about you. Evidence that the Holy Spirit's in your life. So love, but also truth, that we would be word-saturated. Remember, it's the word that does this convicting, right? Hebrews 4, 2 Timothy 3. It's the word that rebukes. And so that we would be so filled with the word of God that when we're talking with somebody and we recognize this person doesn't know Christ, we would know where to go in Scripture to help them see that Jesus Christ is their only hope. And we'd be able to say that with sincerity and with genuine love. And so let's, let's pray to that end that God would make us such a church that it would be evident that God is truly among us in our worship service. Let's pray. Lord, this quite simply, that is what we desire. Not just that unbelievers would recognize that, and in recognizing that, come to worship you, but that we too, Father, would worship you as we come every Sunday, and as we join together in community groups, or in discipleship groups, or in Bible studies, that you would be with us and that your spirit and your power and your truth would echo and be known and understood. And that every time we get together, we would be encouraged, built up and consoled by your truth 
and through one another. And so, towards that end, we ask that you would work. In Christ's name, amen.